0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Voices in Japan podcast with your hosts Ben and Burke. On today's show, we are joined by the author of The Salary Ban, Michael Howard. It's a very humorous and entertaining book about Michael's experiences and observations of working at a number of Japanese companies over nine years. Some of the things we talk about from the book are uh, the interview process, some interesting colleagues that he's worked with, fooling around with company expenses, trapping foreign clients when negotiating business deals, and much, much more. All right. Enjoy the show. 1,
1: 2, three.
2: Man, a lot of people come to Japan and kind of get uh, uh, have the idea to uh, write a book or try to put something out there after going through all the differences in the culture and everything. But you've done that, and not only did you do it, but I think you did it very well. I don't know if many people could do it as well as you have. It's a really entertaining uh, book, and your descriptions of everything are really funny. And, uh, for me, somebody who's kind of gone through the salaryman man experience, it's also very interesting to see all the similarities, but I think even for people who just have an interest in Japan and the crazy culture over here, it's, uh, it's really, uh, it would be a really entertaining book for them as well. Could you just talk a little bit about your background? Uh, I think you have a little bit of experience with writing and, uh, maybe the stuff that you were doing before you came to Japan.
1: Uh, I was a business journalist in Los Angeles before I came to Japan, So, I was working in a newspaper newsroom kind of reporter before the blogs became big kind of era, just before that, I guess. Um, And so, I had a background in reporting and and journalism. Um, I didn't study journalism, but I I got into it as a second career. And uh, I had always written on the side as well for like trade magazines covering technology or like the telecommunications industry. So I'd always written. And even when I got out of journalism, right before I came to Japan, um, I kept doing writing on the side for these trade magazines. And so throughout the time I was at the, the companies in the book, I was still doing lots of uh, freelance writing for trade magazines without my companies knowing about it. <laughs> uh. These are very obscure <laughs> magazines. So it's like, you know, 2000 engineers in the in the whole world might get this magazine kind of thing. And none of them were on my, in my company. <laughs> so it was very safe, uh, but paid very well. And so long story short, that's my background as a writer is that I had cut my teeth as a, as a reporter in a big city newsroom in the U S for a, a couple years and then kept doing uh, freelance writing throughout my time here in in Japan. And it morphed into this more entertaining element that resulted in the book.
2: And uh, let's see, in total, uh, at least with what the book covers, I guess you were, was it four different companies and then also a factory? Oh gosh. Yeah. In Japan?
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's an amazing stat to say, I worked for four different Japanese companies as a quote-unquote lifetime employee <laughs> in nine years. <laughs> You're a lifetime employee, but you were four companies in nine years. That, that's pretty funny and ironic. Um, yeah, so I I was actually a, a contract worker at one of those companies. So I guess oh. that lets me off the hook a little bit with that. But yeah, four companies and Japanese companies in nine years.
2: And I guess like that first job has uh, kind of sounded like the perfect storm of factors came together for you to uh, kind of land that job. It, it almost sounded like you didn't really even think you were going to get the job. And then uh, when you were here, I guess, or in Tokyo for the second or final interview or whatever, uh, you kind of realized that maybe you had already uh, gotten the job and weren't even maybe quite prepared to, uh, and then kind of had to, you know, reevaluate the situation. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to be moving to Japan before I know it
1: basically. <laughs> yeah. It was like one of those situations where you oversell something and you're like. <laughs> Oh my God, they believed that. And I'm not really qualified. One of Japan's biggest um, technology conglomerates. And they were just like, they caught on to this, something I mentioned about, I had done some kind of business with Apple in my Uh US roles. And they were like, Oh, uh, Apple, Steve Jobs. (laughs) This guy is our guy, and like they were obsessed with Steve Jobs, and that was the peak of Apple's you know renaissance. And this is 2008, right? And Mm. and it was like it turned out the the general manager who hired me was the biggest Steve Jobs fanatic in the world, and so it it was purely because almost because of that I felt that I was hired, and I didn't think I had a shot really until I came here for the final interview with the board members. After like seven months of just futile phone calls and delays, I had no idea what's going on. I, I just thought it was in bureaucratic uh, hell and it would never come out of it. <laughs> I wouldn't get the job. Suddenly, I'm in Tokyo with a final interview. Oh, I got it, I guess. And six weeks later, I found myself living in Tokyo.
0: What well, what was that interview process like? Was it really tough? Like you said, it took like seven months. What kind of processes you had to go to or what did you have to do obviously i had a lot of interviews but did you have to do any like presentations or group you know group work and stuff like that
1: no totally <laughs> it, it was all personality based it was just me i had to look the part and sell the part a little bit of like yeah i'm working on big deals here in silicon valley san jose yeah <laughs> you know and and they weren't understanding all the English. <laughs> it was, hey, I was as guilty as anyone, so it wasn't like you know we were playing this two ways. It was it, I, I do call it in the book the prologue or the preface. Um, it sort of was the microcosm of that like Jap- Japanese American attraction on the business level. Right. It was like they wanted to internationalize; they were so desperately uninternationalized, and. I had a Japanese wife at the time who wanted to move back to the U.S. and this was a ticket. <laughs> and it was like, and they were, I wasn't qualified either. I was like, you know, the classic probably American who's not qualified for their for, for all of their adulation. So it was just sort of like a marriage of that. And the interview process was very on the Mae level, right? It was very... Like okay, eight years at this company, or you did this with with your business, and okay, and like they had no detailed questions like to wow. challenge me.
0: So, so what about with you, Burke, when you interviewed for your uh, salary man jobs? Is that a similar situation where it wasn't too challenging?
2: Well, my situation was pretty specific because I think the uh, the actual position within that company was quite difficult, I guess, uh, for foreigners, just because of how different it was from probably what uh, most foreigners are expecting. So I think they were having trouble finding somebody to uh, fill that position. So uh, the interview process itself wasn't that challenging. And I think it was probably very similar to Mike's in the sense that uh, it was kind of like they were more so just checking me out to see how well I would probably fit into the company or maybe not fit in, but would I be a problem or would I not be a problem was kind of I think the main thing that they were trying to to
0: evaluate during the interview process, so they're mainly like kind of trying to judge your character and see how well you fit in with the the working environment
2: exactly, yeah, but I mean, and I, I kind of want to talk about this a little bit later. I think, uh, I mean, there were obviously a lot of similarities that i found uh, in Mike's description of what he's experienced uh, over that time with the various companies, um, but there were also some differences. And, I'm, and I want to uh, kind of talk about that later because it might have to do with the fact that I was kind of at one company for nine years. So I may have kind of crossed into some other realms that uh, <laughs> That's for better or worse, Mike didn't have to uh, experience. But uh, but one thing I wanted to ask you, Mike, about that first position, was was it true that there was really no job description? Was that the job that there wasn't actually any job description? So you weren't really sure what you were going to be doing?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, what was it? Director of Overseas Sales. And the only reason they gave me that was because the salary I demanded required that they gave me a high level sounding title, (laughs) Ah. which... Which gave away my salary to everyone, which made it impossible for me to like get along with (laughs) a lot of people. They were like treating me like I was a fifty-five-year-old vice president, and I'm a thirty-two-year-old at their level. Really, in reality, I'm giving no no responsibility. But because I was like, I was you know making a pretty good salary in my LA software company, I was like, if I'm going to move to Japan, you know, I want to have like a you know whatever a Silicon Valley. 32 year old makes in this position, which was 20 30% more than what anybody in Japan my age was making. But the, oh. the trick was this yeah, the business card title completely gave away that I was making that salary to them. <laughs> uh,
0: and you were the only foreign worker in that company,
1: yeah. Yeah, I was so this was a subsidiary of one of Japan's largest technology conglomerates, and this subsidiary was pretty. Pretty untouched with any international internationalization I think, and I was the only foreigner in the whole company.
0: Are you were there for two years was that was that correct your first one
1: yeah, I was a contract worker, and they had w- hired me to actually eventually be the product director. I think was the title for their new San Jose research center. Oh they were yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah.
0: And that, yeah. That was during just before the, the layman's crash, right? You, you yeah. And in, in the book. Yeah.
1: And this ties into their Steve jobs, Apple fetish. They just thought, Oh, we open a company and it's gotta be in Silicon Valley. That's, that's <laughs> the cool way to do it. And they're not the only ones that have latched onto that idea, but, uh, that's what their idea was. And it was totally flimsy. And I didn't realize completely without any buy-in from the top levels. And once the Lehman shock happened, they were in the semiconductor industry. And that just hit that market hard in 2008 and nine. And they cut all of their non-permanent employees after the first year. So... Once they canceled the plan for the San Jose office and they kept calling it the St. John's project. <laughs> Everyone in my, in, the, in my team called it knew it was the San Jose project that I was, I was the guy. But when I got let go, I had the ceremonious meeting with the board of directors who had no clue what I was working on and they called it the St. John's <laughs> project. <laughs> and I thought it was a pretty good symbolism for the whole thing the whole disaster
2: <laughs> yeah all, all the way to the very end they were still calling it the saint john's project <laughs> was that company uh i mean were there any like traditional customs to that company like uh there were at that factory that you worked at that one sounded like uh, there were some very traditional things like the uh, the morning stretches and uh, reading uh, the rule book too was that something i mean that 's true right You guys had to read out of the rule book at that factory job
1: that was only at a factory I had to do that okay. so the third company I joined um, was not publicly traded but one of japan 's biggest family owned sort of materials uh, raw materials suppliers in the world and they had many factories around Japan and the one I was stationed at for two years. Yeah. We had to s- stand and read two rules from the rule book. I don't know if it was every morning, but it seemed like it. <laughs> and, and of course I didn't, I couldn't read Japanese very well. And I just sort of like hummed it, <laughs> you know, like Robert De Niro in, um, oh, that movie uh, where he plays a, a priest. <laughs> sleepers? Is sleepers. No, he's, Robert De Niro is a, is a convict. We're no angels with, uh, yeah. We're no angels. This is an old one. But huh. he, he plays a convict who who has hiding as a priest and he has to pretend he understands, <laughs> you know, what they're humming. And he's going, Ooh. <laughs> that was me in my, my rule book. Did you
0: have a, did you have a favorite rule that you can remember?
1: Yeah, there are many. It, the book calls out a few. Um, uh, you may not disobey the orders of your superior. It <laughs> was that actually a written rule. <laughs> and, uh, people actually tended to follow that one, actually. <laughs> so that one, that one uh, I was just sort of laughed that it was officially written. And then the other was sort of like no gambling allowed and no, um, you, you can't fool around with your expenses. But the, the whole Hesokuri concept completely fools around with expenses and the way you treat expenses. So I I always found the rule in there, like talking about company expenses are very serious and you should not put (laughs) any of your personal expenses in here. And it's separate from your personal life kind of stuff. And that's all it was in practice was, mingling your personal expenses with your business expenses for purpose of hiding your money from your wife.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So basically everyone pretty much broke that rule or it was like encouraged to break that rule, even though it was written down.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, the very first company I was with, I just didn't get, I'm like, where are you guys getting the money for all this? Like (laughs) they're going out for Nijikai, Sanjikai, some of them, not all, but a lot of them to the, Typical X-rated nightlife areas and all the other stuff, and I'm like, "Geez, I'm like, how do you guys get away with that?" And that's when they explained hasokuri to me, and they're like, "Oh, go talk to your boss tomorrow, hasokuri You very like, you very like." <laughs> and and he's like, "Oh yeah, just go talk to the HR so and so. He'll set you up with a Hesokudi system." <laughs> what? <laughs> and so I did a huge deep dive on it. I'm like, "How does this work?" And they sit sit there and line item your expenses and go, how much do you want into your secret bank account? (laughs) I was like, back up. What's a secret bank account? (laughs) Internet banking and that education came from the HR person. They're telling me how to set up a secret bank account.
0: Did this happen with you as well, Burke, in your experience? I never had a Heso Korea account, uh,
2: but I, I suspected that it was going on uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, especially for the guys that were Tanshin Funin, which is kind of living away from their family on assignment for a few years, or at least until their family uh, came to the area of the job. You know, usually uh, they do this thing where they'll transfer uh, workers to a different part of the country. And because the, well, the main, the normal explanation is because the wife and maybe the kids are in school, the wife doesn't usually go, go with them, but there's probably a lot of uh, other uh, reasons why they uh, do this uh, living away from their, their family and their wife. And in many occasions, I mean, you hear stories about uh, businessmen, like starting up a new life uh, with a new woman away from their family and stuff. And their family has like no idea that it's going on for a few years. Um, so crazy stuff like that. But one thing I did kind of experience, um, uh, there was kind of part of that hustle career kind of similar to it. I think you, you talked about it. The same part in the book was, um, when we would go on these business trips, like my coworkers would try to find the cheapest hotels to stay at, uh, because they would basically give get a per diem and a whole, you know, hotel, uh, allocation, uh, Allocation of money to pay for their hotel, and they would always try to uh, spend a lot less than that so that they could have as much pocket money left over from it uh, yep. afterwards. And that was obviously very, very annoying in a lot of cases because they would stay at the cheapest business hotel, and uh, you know, this was in the agriculture industry, so it'd be in the middle of nowhere, and it would be a place that cost like maybe 2,000, 3,000 yen. And, uh, I mean, you'd see like, basically, you know, like body outlines on the floor or something from past murders or something, or at least <laughs> that was the, uh, sense that you would get at some of these hotels we were staying at and stuff. So did you, did you go ever go through that where guys were trying to kind of budget down as much as possible so they could pocket as, as much of that company money as possible?
1: Yeah. That's standard practice that, uh, I can remember going to Osaka and we'd be in front of Osaka station. And I'd be like, okay, where's our hotel? This is great. You know, I'm expecting the nicest, you know, the nicest mid-level um, businessman alternatives um, in front of Osaka Station or in the vicinity. And we we walked for about 30 minutes and found and eventually go to this, yeah, complete hole in the wall. <laughs> uh, like you described, your feet are hanging off the end of the bed, kind of dive. And and then um, I'm like, what's going on here? And they're like, yeah. What's for dinner and or just having ramen. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> for five dollars, you know, five hundred yen ramen dinner. And like they explained to me exactly what you just described was that's untraceable because then there's nothing that they have to like produce. This is a per diem thing. Yeah. They get they get fifty dollars or you know, five thousand yen a day per diem or something, and the, the more they can just skim on meals in the hotel <laughs> that just adds to the Hesokuti.
2: Yeah. I remember sometimes the guys would come back from these like really, really cheap hotels that they'd been to many, many times before. And they would sit around in the office the next morning and they would look at the uh, pictures of the room and they would try to see like which pictures were showing ghosts, maybe showing in the photos because these places were so old that there was definitely some kind of ghosts or spirits in the room. That they, they all believed in stuff, but another, uh, really interesting part of that business culture that you described very well in the book is this, uh, honey trap this kind of business strategy in Japanese culture, uh, for dealing with negotiations and stuff. Can you talk a little bit more about the honey trap?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I saw it executed to perfection in, uh, what was it? The third company I was at, the very traditional raw materials supplier that had mm-hmm. many of like the top Consumer electronics brands in the world um, as as customers, and we would get people from fresh out of MBA uh, in the Silicon Valley or West Coast coming over trying to negotiate contracts with us for raw materials and big contra- you know very high volumes involved and Chinese factories involved complex supply chains a lot of pressure and they would set up these. These, I don't know. It became a science almost. It was like Mike meets them, hotel lobby, 3.30 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> Monday, uh, Sunday afternoon, the day they arrive. And I'm like, Sunday afternoon? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> they're arriving. Okay. And there's like, okay, Honey Trap is on if it's Sunday afternoon. And, and I'm like, this is just Tate Mai things. They're imagining they want me there and on a Sunday afternoon. They just want to sleep if they're arriving from uh, Narita. And yeah, I mean, it just became like this implied role for me. Like I was there to get them comfortable and get them into the the evening. And it wasn't explicitly said like, get them drunk so that we can like have an upper hand in the negotiating the next day. Right. That wasn't explicitly stated. I'm going a little bit dramatic in the book. Uh, and saying like this is the this is the rule, hmm. but I totally saw it. Like they would, the attitude was the, the the key giveaway. It was like the day before the big day of meetings for talking about contracts and touring factories. The the dinners would be like oh you know complimenting the the visitor on everything like, oh, you're, you're a gentleman, you're a gentleman, George Clooney, you know, and like those kind of like whatever images come to mind of uh, easy to access compliments to foreigners and they're getting their glass filled all night and going to the next bar. But then the next day it's completes like um, at the office, it's hangover on the American side and being completely flustered with paperwork or <laughs> like, like lots of minutiae, like, well, where's your hotel key? Or like, when are you checking out? And like, what? Like, I'm not thinking about that yet. We have a meeting yeah. Yeah. and, and then into the meeting and hot room, you know, and I, I try to tell the bosses, this is too hot for Americans. This is, you know, 27 degrees Celsius is comfortable for Japanese, but <laughs> they, they're used to 21 degrees in Cupertino or San Jose or <laughs> wherever they're from. Right? No, 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 that's okay. And then, very distant um sort of atmosphere suddenly the drinks were <laughs> the drinks were on and the and the compliments were pouring out the night before. but suddenly that side is like hushed over and talking to themselves in Japanese for ten minutes at a time, leaving the Americans st- like just sort of s- sitting there, twiddling their thumbs hung over <laughs> and so i I looked at it as just sort of like a game like their attitude completely changed within a 12-hour window.
2: Yeah. And just like you said, you know, it wasn't ever explicitly stated like, okay, this is what we're going to do, you know, this is going to be our approach and this is how we're going to conquer the meeting and stuff. But it was, I've seen it done so many times and it's like, okay, obviously this is something that is uh, all part of the plan. And uh, I mean, I've seen it done where they would require people from overseas in Europe to arrive like early morning Japan time after an all-night flight and then maybe be allocated the opportunity to go to their hotel room to get refreshed. But, you know, if anything, they would be in a meeting or at at lunch, you know, by 11 a.m. or 12 p.m. And uh, you know, and then when they, Show up uh, at the business location, just like you kind of mentioned in the book. There's also a little bit of sending the the cute uh, females from the office over to distract them a little bit more, so they have n- no time to get their thoughts together. And it was like almost like clockwork that the most important part of the discussion would inevitably come like right when they were getting slammed with the worst part of their jet lag you know and uh but you know on the other side of that it's like you know i mean it was probably all planned out and thought out a little bit but like man the japanese like the employees in the company they also really enjoyed like going i mean i think Mm. there were some people that genuinely they enjoyed that like going out Part, you know, the night before, and hmm. uh, really trying to, in, you know, let them enjoy being in Japan and also themselves just, you know, being out at an izakaya and, yep. uh, you know, drinking like they do so often. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, there were so many times where I was like, man, we've got such an important discussion happening tomorrow. Like, is anyone going to be okay for this? It's going to be yes. like the most ineffective meeting in some sense, but in the other sense, yeah, it's going to be very good for the Japanese side. And then just like you also <laughs> mentioned in the book. Uh, in Japan, there are so many tonics that they use these drinks with tur- turmeric and everything to recover <laughs> you know from a night out drinking and, and the foreigners unfortunately just are completely unprepared for the whole thing
1: and <laughs> I, I can remember one American guy just whispering to me going into a meeting like i haven 't taken a dump in three days <laughs> <laughs> and he blamed it he blamed it on on us <laughs> the massage the spa. The drinking, it all dehydrated me, you know, and he blamed. <laughs> it was very funny. Um, and, you know, I don't take it negativ- negatively, the, the whole thing. Like you said, it's it's just part of the glory of, like, the country. It's it's about consumption in a lot of ways and the bonding that happens during these, like, glorious taking advantage of Izekiah. Izekiah is not just, like, about eating and drinking. It's just the glorious kind of place and and cultural custom and a lot of americans write it off as like part of doing business here and or foreigners just, and as they should it's like it should be in the guidebooks as a like if you're going to come here if you can be a guest at an izakaya that should be <laughs> it's part of your experience if you can manage it it's that fun
2: Yeah, it's definitely like work hard, but when work finishes it, like, you know, enjoy hard too, you know, at the izakaya's, the restaurants, drinking, and then, you know, I've talked about it before on the podcast, but somehow like, uh, get back the next morning and, and, you know, do another day of work. But in my experience, a lot of times, like the Japanese, uh, the Japanese workers are just so exhausted from enjoying things the whole, uh, so much the night before it's like the whole morning is completely like wasted away. Nobody's, you know, getting anything done in meetings. Basically everyone's just recovering from their, their night before, cause it probably
0: ended just a few hours before they got to the office or something. So but they always they always make it in though, right? Like you don't get anyone calling in sick if they've got like a hangover or something. They always make it into work on time, looking like they're not been on a all night bender or something like that. Like I've never had any coworkers. I've never been like a salary man. But even in the, the schools I worked at, we go out on a night out with with the teachers, and yeah, we we get you know we get quite rowdy, and then but the next day. It's like, apart from me and my other foreign teachers, everyone else looks like they didn't even go out the night before. Yeah, so, and it's I those agree. drinks, those drinks, right? That that the Japanese are very good at kind of consuming before, during, and after the session.
1: I'm I'm completely still mystified of how they're able to hide the, the hangover <laughs> the next day. I, I I look like Saddam Hussein I mentioned <laughs> when they pulled them out of that bunker. Yeah. yeah yeah that he was on the lamb for for two weeks hiding yeah. in and he looked like a caveman <laughs> that's me after one of those nights i can't hide a hangover at all and i look like complete shit the next day and these uh sorry man yeah they burn it off or i don't know if it's the tonics or the baths or yeah. <laughs> genetics or what Oh yeah
0: it's the, it's the secret of, uh, of japanese people maybe
2: Yeah. Can I read actually that part where you're talking about that description from your book? I've got it uh, pulled up here. If you don't mind, can I just share this a little bit on the podcast? I mean, this also talks about the uh, summer Tokyo heat, but it says, I'd marvel at at how after getting tossed and turned in hellishly hot and packed morning trains, these salarymen would fall out of the train car without a hair out of place, while I'd emerge looking like Saddam Hussein did after two weeks of hiding in an Iraqi bunker. It all came to a head for me one summer morning during my first year here. I was walking to work with a horde of other commuters when I noticed a limp-looking, disheveled white man, possibly a homeless person, walking toward me. With a shock, I realized it was my own image reflected in a building window. (laughs) (laughs) So this is just uh, an example of a lot of the great descriptions you give in the book. But I mean, talking about those guys recovering, not only would they not seem like they had been out the night before, but I mean, they'd be ready and up for it uh, that the next day too, the next evening. There was a guy in our company. um, He's very similar. He reminded me of the guy in your book that you called the carnivore. Um, But he was kind of this very boisterous character uh, he was loved by people from overseas just because he tried to speak English a lot and uh, he was a great salesman. He was actually a director of sales in the company and uh, man, he was a hardcore drinker and eater as well. There was one time when we went to Tokyo and, uh, I went with them to a yakitori restaurant and we drank and drank like crazy and had a lot of great food. And, uh, after it finished, uh, he was like, Hey, let's go to one more place and have one more drink. And I was like, Okay went to the next place, and uh, I think we're just going to have a beer or, or something to kind of finish off the evening. And he ordered, like, three or four more plates of food at this Chinese restaurant, and there's only two of us. And he's like – and I'm like, who is this for? And he's like, this is just for us. And I was like, man, I'm so full. And he proceeded to finish eating, like, those three or four dishes by himself in addition to, like, downing all these beers. But uh, he was kind of this really strong character that had, like, a lot of uh, – good uh, experience with the within the company so he had respect within the company and he could also get respect like i said from people overseas so he reminded me of this guy that you talked to, about in the book uh, the carnivore uh who is that guy again a little bit what was uh what was he like
1: you mentioned the senpai did i ever have any senpais too uh yeah yeah he was one of them and he's he's he was a friend um now we fought we had some big fights but ultimately we really developed a great relationship. And I I really treasure that time with him. It was probably a two, three-year period. He wasn't even a, a permanent employee. He was, what, almost about 70, 72. Wow. And Whoa. he had really high-level audio engineer and very respected in that, that uh, line of work. And he knew where I came from. I had worked for some pretty famous audio people in LA before I came. And so that was our connection in the beginning. He he was like, oh, wow, you worked for those guys. And he knew the lab that I worked at in LA. So we were connected that way. (laughs) And he spoke great English. But he kind of took me under his wing and on his sort of kamikaze course of like a pointless project that we were on, that was all his—just sort of old crony, old boy network. We're going to build this speaker, whether anyone buys it or not. Kind of, <laughs> he was just—he was there to keep working. He—he mm. he was a workaholic from that salaryman um, samurai kind of mentality. He just loved working and engineering and staying working till eleven o'clock at night and going to India and working software projects and making me come with him, you know, and like forcing me to stay in a very like deserted, dank and depressing Megaro development center with a typhoon that's blasting through Tokyo. And like, I want to go home to my young baby and like the typhoon's coming. I'm like, I want to get out of here. And he's like, typhoon, (laughs) you know, (laughs) he's just like, he looked up from, from the, the, electronics board that he had his head, he dove his head into for like an hour and he was like soldering it. And I was like complaining. I want to go home with a typhoon. He's like typhoon. <laughs> and he put his head back down and kept working. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like totally intimidated. Like I'm like, Oh my God. I'm, I was impressed too. I was like, wow, this guy's tough mm-hmm. and great at what he does. And so I just sort of like fell into his, his world a little bit um, out of desperation and a little bit out of admiration <laughs> uh, and and just sort of lived there for, for two years. And boy, man, he was a, he was a classic stoic Patriot, you know, of like that period. Like he, he worked in a pretty elite company, but got kicked out of it um, at a, in the late eighties, early nineties, um, which he told me all about on some overseas trips. And so it's just, very very complex guy, but we called him the carnivore because he was such a consumer of everything. You know, the vices of the salaryman culture—that was mm. his. He just sort of like lived that naturally, and all the all the herbivore men, you know, social kudanshi, uh culture, just sort of were like, "Wow, this guy's old school." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you, and you mentioned he
0: um, he kind of was your sake master. He taught you a lot about sake or nihonshu so you're you you must be quite an expert on that
1: no (laughs) i'm not an expert i i I don't claim to be an expert in anything japan um i wrote a book on japan but it's all about like my being overmatched by by (laughs) japan that's that's my shtick it's i i don't i i learned what i could from them i don't drink sake much like i'll drink it with with sushi like it goes perfectly with that In uh, it's moments I'll drink it and I'll remember what he recommended, but to get through that period. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely drank it, took whatever his recommendations were and just sort of went with it.
2: Man. Some, some of those guys, I mean, the guy that uh, I was mentioning was kind of similar to that guy that was kind of like your unofficial senpai um, man. Some of them just, have so much knowledge about a lot of those things like, you know, and showing shochu and everything that's, it's like almost impossible to keep up with how many things are trying to introduce to you and all the nuances of what's good and what's not good and everything. And, and so, man, you can tell like they've been <laughs> building up a lot of knowledge about that stuff over the years. And, and uh, how about you, you yourself though, were you ever uh, put in a position where you had Kohai and you had to play the senpai role to, to Japanese employees?
1: No, I, I think that uh, I was always on the high end of it mm. because of, I came here 32 and don't speak Japanese well. Uh, at that time, almost nothing. But, um, and I think I was, never a, I was never a senpai or a mentor um, until I came to an American company in Japan. No, yeah, it's, it's three years ago. I've, I've been able to adopt that role a little bit, and sometimes, but I've always been a, a co <laughs> uh, uh I think that that's part of the deal. I wasn't disappointed or surprised by that. I didn't think I'd like suddenly be telling people what to do because I worked in a sort of a Silicon Valley style LA software startup. I realized when I came to a Japanese company, it was like I was bombarded by rules that I didn't understand. Constantly making mistakes. People saw it. We're like, oh, this guy doesn't know much. <laughs> you know. And I was like, how am I going to be a leader when I'm like, I can't even fill out my name correctly or do a honko correctly. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's where I've been on. That, that's been me in my personal life and my professional life since I got here 12 years ago. It's like, how do you how do you look up to a, a guy who can't even like sign his name right, you know? And and that that kind of like bled into my personal life too. It was just like, you know, I, I don't know what Japanese education system is like. I can't lead my son's homework assignments and give him advice on how to like do his Japanese homework. So it's like you can't do all those things that a middle aged American dad like mows the lawn, plays ball with his kid you know, takes them inside and teaches them how to read and like, you know, you don't get to do that, that role. Uh, and so yeah. that, that's where I found myself. I never was like a senpai and that sort of led to a little bit of frustration on my part.
2: Yeah. That's kind of, uh, I mean, it's a lot of what you're describing there. It's, it's kind of, uh, I think part of the difficult, obviously a difficult part about living here because And uh, it reminds me of my mom, because my mom is Japanese and she was, you know, we grew up in the U S and she kind of never really knew what the experience was for us growing up in school. So she was always having trouble, um, you know, trying to contribute, I guess, to that portion of us being raised. But, and, you know, I'm going through that too with my own child and, and uh, I mean, she's still quite young right now, but at some point. You know, I'm I'm kind of worried about how much will I be able to support her in a lot of that educational process, and then at work, uh, for whatever reason, just after a certain amount of time, you know, they were putting teams together underneath me, and uh, I was kind of just forced to try and decide like how what kind of uh, senpai did I want to be? Would it be a very Japanese like senpai and, and do things the way a Japanese senpai would, or some of these like younger Japanese workers were kind of looking forward to uh, working under a foreigner because they would feel like they might get the better experience or at least a new experience out of it. So it was always like, you know, trying to figure out what was best for both myself and these other people but yeah that whole thing of like being in a completely different culture and then you know how do you help out your own kids uh you know as they grow up and stuff it's a, it's kind of a challenge that all parents i think go through But there's a lot of other things in the book, too, that, uh, you know, you obviously describe the very humorous aspect of them, but you also... Uh, kind of mentioned how you uh, admire them, or or at least you also recognize a lot of the good things about them. Uh, one of those is these, the health check system, the yearly health check system that they have in Japan. And, mm-hmm. uh, man, it reminded me of it so much. I mean, just like you said in the book, like it's this great system where they do all these tests, but it's kind of like this conveyor belt system where they just run you through everything, you know, within an hour. And I've kind of been through both systems where they'll have like the hospital people come to the company. And have all the employees go to these different stations, or I've also been to the ones that, you know, some clinic location downtown where they've got just hundreds of people churning through all these tests and everything. And <laughs> and, it, and it gives us a really good opportunity for uh, preventative care and everything. But kind of like you mentioned in the book, the uh, guys in the office would be like <laughs> all of a sudden, like just uh, the week or a couple of days before they were going to have their health check, all of a sudden they would try to like completely turn their life around towards being healthy. And they'd be like, <laughs> Yeah, I can't go out tonight to drink. I've got my health check tomorrow, and it's like, is that going to really change your scores too much and stuff? cramming,
1: yeah. cramming for the, uh, cramming for the health check.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. Yeah, and then and they'd be so pr- surprised when they get like these uh, pink sheets to you know require <laughs> them to go back for a follow up examination about some <laughs> issue that came up or something.
1: Or they but, have so. gout. They have gout. <laughs> that was, I had a boss with gout. So yeah, always drinking and yeah, the health checks went up that he was completely off the what do you call it? Um, off the charts <laughs> in the
2: wrong way, yeah. In
1: the wrong way.
2: But you also I mean you talked and gave a really good description about the barium test. So what exactly are those barium tests uh about if you could let people know?
1: Oh my god. This is difficult. Uh, it makes my stomach queasy just thinking about them now, but you know, the the overall uh, image of it, or the reality of it, is it's a positive, actually. Right. And I, as an American, I, keep, I cannot be in a position to criti- criticize the healthcare system here in Japan. <laughs> I'll put that out front. Uh, we have a lot of work to do in the U.S., um, like, I think, um, yeah, yeah, for, for, sure. for the mainstream middle-class person, as far as preventative care. And so I think Japan does a great job with that. And But it's very, very painful for an American to adopt it. Um, to to like learn how to just sort of get through an exam, because it's it's blended into your day as a uh, employee, and these are traditional companies I'm talking about. You don't the traditional companies that I worked at. You don't take a day off to go get your health check or a half day off. They bring it to your office. They bring these trucks with the X-ray machines and sit outside your office. And then they bring the nurses and doctors into your office and clear out the meeting rooms. And you sit there in your robes and, you know, side by side, half almost feeling half naked with your coworkers standing in the harsh light, you know, while you're getting <laughs> yeah. your, your blood pressure and blood taken. And um, the barium test would be something you'd, you'd drink this white shake <laughs> and it uh, coats your stomach and it's stomach cancer um screening and they get that as a standard health check like for if you're in your 20s you get it which is awesome that's great like I'm all for that but like the downside of it is just like whoa you know this thing rocks your system like you just they give you a laxative um to go with it that just makes you for me anyway didn't, disagree, didn't agree with my my system at all, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and for I'd sure. be just it would rock my digestive system for a week afterwards, and I didn't. Yeah, I had to learn the hard way, like not to schedule any trips, <laughs> the, the anywhere near my uh, barium experience. I'm thankful though. I mean, they discovered some. You know, I had like a semi ulcer at one point caused by the stress of working at their company. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, hey, you induced this, not me. And uh, I'm like, okay, thanks, I guess, for all the, the hell that led to that. But uh, yeah, I guess you probably prevented it some problems. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I had the, the barium test for the first time about two years ago in one of my schools. And they, they said to me, you're supposed to start taking it when you turn either 37 or 36 like it it was mandatory in in our school so before then we didn't have to take the barium test but they kept like some of my teachers just kept winding me up about the barium test the barium (coughs) test you gotta drink this stuff and it's gonna like mess you up and stuff and i was getting a little bit freaked out by it and then when i when i drank it i was like you know they're like you can't eat anything the night before you can't you have to have an empty stomach Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we had the barium test, they put us into this machine. I got strapped to this machine. It was this huge circular device, and I had I had to do like an X-Man shape in the middle of it, and then they just span me around, like rotating me, yep. and then and then making the barium swirl around, and that was how they kind of yeah. did the test. Yeah, and it was insane. That's exactly the, what...
1: The illustration in my book depicts. Yeah.
0: yeah. And they brought this <laughs> massive truck to the school with this machine in there, and yeah. everyone had to go through it. Yeah. It was insane.
1: Oh, yeah. The, the guy operating the machine be screaming <laughs> Japanese at me. Oh, flip over to the left. Flip over to the right. right. Turn over. You're going, to, you're going the wrong way. And, like, uh, it took me 20 minutes and it took everyone else two minutes um, yeah. to get this done because I couldn't understand his orders totally. And uh, it was miserable. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. but again, I was just sort of like, I came out of it like, okay, I didn't understand what's going on here. It's about my health. That's great. I never would have gotten this preventative care in the US. That's great. Jesus, I hated that whole experience. Right. right. So what, is, what does that mean? It sort of balances out to a, a zero, but probably it was better that it. That I went through that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've had so many bad experiences with it that, uh, I mean, I'm not even, I'm taking the other option now, the, uh, the, uh, stomach camera. And, uh, they actually say like, that's what all the doctors do instead of the barium test. The barium test obviously, uh, is a lot less expensive, uh, it's, I think it's usually free as part of the uh, health check. But if you pay for the stomach camera exam, which is like what everyone at our company was trying to do, and I think most people do that, that they get so backed up in these uh, reservations for the stomach camera test that like it, it sometimes it takes place like three months after your uh, actual health check. But man, that barium like hopefully the laxatives actually work because that's why I had to stop doing because that stuff like solidifies in your system. If you uh, don't get it out using those laxatives and there were some times like the next morning where I felt like I was trying to pass a brick, some solid (laughs) massive white brick. And that happened like two years in a row. And I was just like, I'm not doing this anymore. And ever (laughs) since then I've been doing the camera tests.
1: Yep. I'm, I'm not doing the barium thing either. I, uh, I think I've sworn the whole thing off, but I got to do. I'll start doing the camera thing uh, now that I've heard you. That
0: sounds quite invasive as well, though. I I take it they go through your mouth and not the other end. (laughs)
2: Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you can do uh, either through the nose or through the mouth. And they recommend the nose, they say it's better. But, uh, man, I know some people that are so afraid of that that they
0: are still struggling through the barium test. Yeah, I I think I might choose the barium test over going through the nose. I I like the idea of that. There's
1: plenty of time for you to debate the merits of American English. Japanese systems while you're parked on a toilet after the break <laughs> for a good two weeks after it.
0: <laughs> so, Mike, what are uh, what are you up to these days? So, you're not a salary man anymore. Are you like a full time writer now? Is that
1: your no.
2: next? You're working in a you're working kind of an American company right now.
1: Yeah, I'm with an American technology company now. Uh, with a big presence here in Japan and uh, mostly Japanese here, but a lot of foreigners, you know, transferred from the headquarters and very international uh, Japanese environment. So English is used in all written documents and mostly in meetings too. And yeah, it was the natural place for me to end up. Finally, Uh, it was the only place I could really hope to to come and want to stay for a while. It just, Happy sanity. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and you're, and you're planning on writing another book. I, I know you mentioned at the beginning um, about your city. Is, someone's called city in your book, who you're going to uh, mention in your next book. You were saying, could you tell us a bit about who that person is?
1: Oh, that's just my younger sister. My oh, okay. nickname, My nickname for her. Yeah. I'm joking around. I <laughs> dedicated the book to my family and, That's my younger sister's name. And yeah, I try to, in a lot of the, um, foreigner memoirs here in Japan that are written here in Japan, I noticed like you don't get a lot of sense of where they came from and Mm. like what they were or who they were and their family was before they came to Japan. And I thought like, I try to put in the book a lot, weave in my father and how classic American, you know, Oji-san he is and, uh, I try to weave in my brother sort of torturing me kind of hijinks and shenanigans of growing up in suburban America into my book. And so that's part of that dedication is just sort of like, hey, look, you know, I came here as a typical American dude. I didn't grow up studying Japanese or didn't, I enjoyed Japanese consumer electronics a lot and had some Japanese friends at pretty much every school I went at, went to. Um but I was just sort of like a normal middle-class American coming over here. So uh, yeah, that, that's behind that dedication.
2: But I guess uh, maybe your next project is you're going to be putting out a manga or, or comic book that uh, kind of further highlights a lot of these experiences as a salaryman?
1: Yeah. So the manga artist I worked with to illustrate the, the salaryman book, we've expanded and really kept going with our collaboration and we're this month going to publish a new manga series based on the on the, the salaryman book and it's it's a little more fictionalized um, but it's a depiction of what it's like to be a foreign salary man at a Japanese company and it's very humorous and has a lot of insights and truisms in it and uh, I guess maybe I've, the ideal is it becomes sort of like a Dilbert japan for uh (laughs) for what it's like to to work in an office environment it's office humor uh and very not negative just very just sort of observational and what it's like but that'll be out very soon um digitally and in print
2: i think it's probably going to be great i mean like i said at the top of the podcast man uh your writing style is is really entertaining and had me laughing out loud a, a lot of times. And, and man, there's a lot of other things that I was uh, hoping we could get to today. Unfortunately, we're running out of time a bit. But, you know, just the way you describe like napping culture in Japan <laughs> or people talking on the phone, uh, Japanese workers and how much respect they're showing to the person on the other end, even though they can't see them. Uh, man, there's just so many uh, good things in the book that you describe so well. That um, it's definitely something that uh, your book is something that I would recommend for everyone to check out who has any kind of interest in Japan.
0: Yeah, and it's it's a really uh, easy read. It flows really well. I read it in uh, yeah, I read it about two days. Like I don't I don't normally read books that often. So yeah, it's it's, it's quite a, a page turner. So uh, yeah, I recommend it. And where can they find? uh your book mike there's a there's a website
1: yes so the website it? is www.thesalarymanbook.com
0: thesalarymanbook.com the and i guess they can all purchase that at amazon as well i think i saw it uh, yeah. on amazon yeah
1: it's available on the website has a link to the uh, amazon page that sells the book and i really appreciate it if anybody who buys it uh, can leave a review on the amazon website that that really helps to help other readers learn what the book's about and if you want to subscribe to the manga um there's a sign up on the um website i just mentioned if you want to put your email address into the into that you'll be notified when the manga is available
2: cool man just uh, again want to thank you for coming on the podcast hopefully uh maybe after the next project comes out we can have you on again there's so much more i wanted to ask you about like also uh, japanese people's reactions to to the this work and and stuff like that but uh, thank you for the time today and uh man all the best we'll be looking forward to the next project
1: my pleasure thanks for having me thanks for coming on mike really appreciate it thank you thanks Bye. bye